Hey everyone, it's Matt. I just wanted to thank you for listening so far. We've reached people in six countries and 22 states. It's been a fun and engaging project that I plan to continue doing. If you or someone you know would be interested in being on the pod, please reach out to me through Spotify. A special note about this week's episode, Rochelle Uni is the guest, and she has her own podcast, Mortality in the Morgue. She interviewed me there and released the episode on May 1st. I want to encourage you all to check out her podcast, and if you want to hear me on the other side of the interview as the interviewee. I hope you'll continue to listen, and please follow and share the podcast with at least three people. Welcome to Modern Mortality. My name is Matt Bulos. This is the podcast where we talk to experts across fields to examine how they relate to mortality. Today's guest is Rochelle Uni. She is currently a writer, filmmaker, and podcast host. Her podcast is called Mortality in the Morgue, where she interviews people discussing death, dying, and grief. She also spent two years working with a body donation program as a mortician. Rochelle attended Douglas College, where she studied criminology. Today, Rochelle will let us know how she got into the mortician space and how all this relates to filmmaking and mortality. Rochelle, thanks for joining us. And why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Hi, thanks for having me, Matt. Um, yeah, so I, I did have kind of like an unusual path, I guess, to working in death care and now like taking a very, very different path into filmmaking. But yeah, like you said, I had uh, taken my undergrad in criminology and that was originally with the intention of going into medicine. Uh, I wanted to do that as my undergrad because I was really fascinated by forensic pathology. So I was sort of looking for an intersection between like forensics and medicine. And I really liked the sort of like social science aspect of criminology. So I, I did that with, you know, really focusing on the intention of applying to medical school and, and becoming a doctor. And through my practicum that I had with my undergrad, um, I, I had the opportunity to do it in the morgue of a local hospital under a, a forensic pathology, uh, well, actually, yeah, he was just a full forensic pathologist, already done his fellowship and everything. And I just got to kind of be on his service in the morgue, learning how to do autopsies. And it was it was really, really incredible. And then by the time I had finished my undergrad, I didn't get into medical school right away. So I went to apply for work and I really enjoyed being in the morgue. And there just so happened to be an opening at the medical school I was actually applying to uh, in their body donation program, like you said. And yeah, I just, I worked there for a couple of years, uh, kind of until the pandemic hit, which just sort of caused me to really pause and reflect on my life and where I was going and being an artistic person and, you know, expressing myself through different forms of art. And I've always absolutely loved and been obsessed with TV and movies that it just, it felt like a switch, even though again, it's a different field. Um, it's, it's been really, really great now that I'm kind of doing this, this new type of work and I still get to integrate all of my experience in and around medicine and, you know, criminology and the morgue work, it, it definitely comes up a lot in my work still. So yeah, it's, that's, that's kind of my long convoluted uh, path to where I am now. Well, that's cool. I mean, you can't really be a writer or create stuff without experience and stories to tell. So I can see totally. how that would dovetail nicely. Definitely. Definitely. Do you remember what your first experience with death was like? Gosh, I think my first experience, one of the earliest ones was probably just losing a neighbor. It was, it was somebody, yeah, in my childhood, I think like I, we were qu quite close with, there was like a mom, dad, two kids kind of situation. And, you know, me and my brother were friends with the, the kids and the children's their their mom died and i i do remember that as being like oh okay that's like kind of a conversation around death but 
for the most part, you know, I think maybe after that, it was like my grandfather, I think was the first to pass away. Um, and it was mostly just like grandparent related death for the most part. So nobody who was like, you know, it would definitely no like traumatic, you know, encounters in terms of that. But there was a lot of um, mental illness in my family growing up. And that kind of came into the form of uh, a lot of uh, suicide attempts, unfortunately. Mm. And that was, I would say, the the biggest kind of a hard confrontation with death, not in the sense that, you know, fortunately they did not follow through with it and they were, did not complete the suicide, but it definitely put on my radar from a pretty early age that death and mortality was sort of something to be afraid of from that context. Because yeah, obviously with like grandparents passing away and whatnot, um, that was pretty natural and I was kind of old enough to, to understand what was happening. But with, yeah, the, the suicide early in my life and then the, my, the neighbor who actually passed away died by suicide as well. So oh, wow. that was, kind of, yeah, that was kind of like a very early theme in my life where that kind of caused me to kind of ponder it. Maybe how how old so. were you when the suicide ideas started to permeate in a real way? a good question i think the first time i would have been about eight or so Mm. maybe seven or eight and then again kind of with my own family i think i was probably 11 or 12 at the time so i was quite young and there also wasn't a very open dialogue i would say especially around suicide about what that is, uh, why, you know, that's kind of happening. You know, it it just was a very like, okay, this happened. We're going to kind of push it away and not talk about it, which Mm -hmm. I think kind of perpetuated the maybe personal fascination with it just because I was like, okay, well, what is this? And why is this happening? And why is it making like our lives so difficult? So it kind of prompted me to go into it a bit more, uh, extensively, I would say. And so again, those ex- I was, yeah. Those experiences actually fostered curiosity in you, despite the family not really fostering that curiosity for you. Yeah, and I don't know if that's just kind of my own, I don't know, kind of personality trait that you know, if I'm afraid of something or you know, there's there's something that's kind of being hidden that. I want to know as much about it as possible, just so I can kind of, it it almost gives me some sense of control that if I know as much as possible about it, then at the very least, I'm kind of geared with information, even if I don't have the like, emotional support to deal with it, which is in reality, what children in particular, or anybody really needs to get through something like that is just the, the emotional, you know, safety and support. But right. in the absence of that, I think my my method of getting through it was just to figure out what this was so that I could kind of, yeah, arm myself with, with as many tools as possible to get through it. But yeah, so as in, a young in, person, that's hard. <laughs> instead of avoiding it, you embraced it, it sounds like. Yeah, that was always sort of my mentality. Like even throughout my life, you know, eventually deciding that I wanted to work in the death industry, that was sort of my way of confronting it head on, was that I had spent so much time kind of ruminating and being even personally in these kind of dark spaces, pondering death a lot. And as a way to kind of quite literally, you know, take it on at you know, get my hands dirty, literally be involved with death as much as possible and people grieving death and people who, you know, are actively in the throes of, you know, loss. I I felt like that was a way that, I don't know, I could 
kind of use this, all of this time and empathy and knowledge I had gained through my own personal experiences to hopefully help other people get through really challenging times. And mm-hmm. then also just kind of confront um, the, the messiness of, of death and mortality myself. So yeah, that's always been a little bit of just my, my mentality is to, yeah, not avoid it and just try to take it at face value. What type of inquisitions or activities did your curiosity lead? Yeah, I think a lot of it at first was very much in just like the media I consumed. So, you know, even, you know, books, literature, or TV shows, you know, I was just very much drawn to any type of art or medium that explored those themes in any depth. So it was, you know, quite often quite like dark things that I was kind of drawn to. So there, I, I sort of, I guess, found comfort in those darker things and, and just finding that other people were kind of channeling these thoughts through art in some way was, was very comforting to me. And then I would say the other sort of component of it was especially around the suicide aspect of it was the mental health component of just, I kind of became quite fascinated with uh, psychology and, you know, mental illnesses. And, you know, I, I remember at a fairly young age, you know, picking up a book on abnormal psychology and reading through it and just to try to get an idea of, what mental illness was or is and how it might drive somebody to wanting to end their own life. And yeah, so that kind of, I guess it sparked sort of an intellectual curiosity to just understand different facets of this world. And then also look into different career paths where I might be able to kind of utilize this information. And that's when I started researching becoming a physician and also um, more specifically forensic pathology and how I might be able to to be a doctor and kind of serve in like the death care space as well. So yeah, there's a few different facets that uh, it took me down. It's pretty unique to lean into ideas that big as a, as a human, first of all, mm. second, <laughs> yeah. second of all, as such a young person. I want to go back to the media that you're consuming. Mm-hmm. Do you remember of the? Do you remember any of the examples, like what mm-hmm. movies or TV shows or books or? Yeah, so I I remember liking uh, Edgar Allan Poe a lot. Okay, because uh, he you know definitely talks a lot about like the macabre, the insanity, you know, like a lot of those kind of old timey notions of you know. Uh, kind of losing one's mind but also in the kind of gothic macabre way of there being some kind of supernatural element also to it was kind of um comforting to me i i really like stephen king uh again he kind of goes into the the dark nasty parts of Mm -hmm. the human condition and uh it's it's both kind of scary and macabre and there's a death and you know all kinds of things he touches on with with his his books i really liked dexter uh you know i i think just obviously there's a lot of death in that show (laughs) um sherlock holmes you know just in the kind of more death investigation aspect of of you know looking into again just the dark aspects of the human condition and what we do and you know the kind of nasty elements of who who humans can be um those are all really good examples and like they're so big ones yeah they're so well known amongst most people yeah yeah and it's just interesting that most people aren't approaching it with the same curiosity that that led you to your interest in those series Mm. I feel like I feel like most people consume those things as kind of like a guilty pleasure, um, yes. not not as like to gain to gain insight into the human condition, perhaps. But that's that's pretty advanced for a, a young kid. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think I 
I was just one of those kids who like also loved school. So like it, I, I put all of my eggs in one basket at, like at a pretty young age to be like, well, I, I do pretty well in school. I like learning. Um, you know, this information is what is technically available to me, you know, either through fiction or nonfiction, you know, types of things to consume. Mm. So it was just kind of felt like, this is what's at my disposal as a young person who otherwise doesn't have like a ton of autonomy or yeah, control over my situation. It was just kind of like, okay, well, let's just, you know, dive deep <laughs> into, into this stuff. And, you know, I think all things considered, it's one of maybe the healthier types of coping mechanisms, you know, reading books or whatnot is not like or watching tv is not like the worst type of thing you could be doing oh, um, definitely in, not yeah in, in that <laughs> type of circumstance okay. but yeah it worked for me at least very cool uh, what did you learn most when you were working with the body donation program hmm well, I learned how to embalm. So very practically, that was just a skill that I, I learned while I was there was because um, before I, I was just doing and assisting with autopsies. And so when I got that job, part, a big part of it was embalming cadavers for the purposes of teaching anatomy to the medical students. And yeah, so that that was kind of just cool because uh, I'm just somebody who really finds anatomy uh, fascinating. That was one of my initial kind of prompts to go into medicine in general um, was to that I, I really like human anatomy and biology. But so that that was interesting. And, and then I would say maybe more so from the like sociological or, you know, if, customer quote customer facing aspect of that kind of work where I'm dealing with a lot of people typically who have lost somebody within the past 24 hours because mm. that was kind of one of the requirements of the program was that you know if somebody is registered to donate their body to this program we ask that we're notified within 24 hours of their passing so that you know, we can, if they're accepted into the program, we can embalm them and preserve their tissues before they start decomposing. So there's quite a quick turnaround time between people losing somebody and contacting. Most often it was me as kind of like, I was like the person who would be taking the those calls. So I would just say that was kind of one of my biggest first experiences dealing with actively grieving people who are in in the uh, you know throes of grief and learning i suppose the very different forms that can take and you know whether that be from some people you know you could never tell that they just lost their mother and it was just kind of a very kind of practical conversation of like, okay, my mom just died. How can we facilitate this process? And, you know, you can just kind of glean people's coping mechanisms through talking to them during this time. And again, you know, people's relationships with their loved ones can be very different too, which is something I, I learned as well. So just because somebody is your mother, it does not mean that, you necessarily had a great relationship with her or, you know, feel particularly upset about her passing. Um, and then, you know, the flip side of that, where I had people actively sobbing on the phone and or yelling at me or, you know, just really bearing witness to the various forms that grief can take was quite eye opening to me. Um, so yeah, I definitely kind of got a, a wide ranging experience at the body donation program. Grief is such a wild emotion. And if there yeah. was only if there was only one experience that you could say defined the human experience, I think it would be grief. Oh yeah. Um yeah. just that loss and I mean it shows up in so many different ways, even within the same person. Totally. Gr grief is going to be a series of every emotion you can experience and the question is just like how long is that going to 
to go on. And yeah, it's at least in my experience as a physician, like there's no training or warning for that. Mm -hmm. You just, Mm -hmm. so I I don't know if you had any type of like orientation or tutorial. I'd be really interested to know if you did. Yeah, that's, that's a good point because no, honestly, like I think before getting the job, like part of what sort of made me qualified, I guess, for the position other than just experience having literally worked with dead bodies before was that I had also been in situations mostly through volunteering where I was working with like vulnerable populations or people who, you know, positions where like it requires extra people skills. So for example, I I volunteered at the hospital in like the mental health units for a long time. So I had experience talking to people in a lot of different, you know, levels of mental health needs. And, you know, I think just through the lived experience of kind of learning through that type of work, I I just kind of learned how to speak to people and, you know, show empathy and listen and all of those kinds of things. But, you know, like you said, grief in particular is kind of its own beast. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we didn't really receive any formal training um, in regards to that. And I know at some point throughout our work, we had people, because there's also this kind of odd intersection with that type of program where occasionally we would get a phone call with somebody who is alive, interested in the program, and in sort of a way that almost suggests they're going to be ending their life soon and they want Mm. to be able to donate to our program, which is something that we do not allow. So as a part of my job, uh, it was actually to when somebody dies is I would usually call their physician and we would kind of go over a list of our requirements to make sure that they're a suitable fit for the program. And one of our excluding requirements was that they did not die by suicide because we don't want to sort of inadvertently, uh, you know, suggest that people should be donating to our program through ending their own lives. And Mm. obviously, and then there's also just a lot of complicated, you know, uh, with the family and everything. So we would sometimes get a phone call with somebody who was not actively mentally well. And there was sort of a requirement on uh, my part and my colleagues part to almost talk them down and or, you know, provide extra kind of emotional or counseling support that sort of fell outside of our job description. And yeah, that, that seems like a mighty big ask to ask yes. of someone who's not trained in like a psychological or yes. counseling space. Exactly. So I think when that happened, I think it happened like a couple of times, um, you know, we did bring it to our manager and he was quite like proactive about it. So I think he actually, um, like hired or or got because it was through like you know I was working at a university got a psychologist to come in and talk to our team about ways not only to really kind of handle those situations as best as possible but to also kind of look after ourselves when that happens because that can be like you said, again, when you're not like specifically trained or expecting that in your place of work um, can be a very heavy conversation to have, uh, especially if you're not feeling like you're properly equipped to be having that conversation. And yeah, so there was definitely a bit of like, these are some kind of techniques you can use to when even uh, a conversation tends is kind of getting out of control, not even in the sense of like you're worried about somebody might be ending their life, but you know, maybe somebody's just screaming at you on the phone because they're angry or uh, in, in the throes of grief and some kind of you know techniques to walk you through it. But by no means was it like extensive, like a course or training really. Um, 
to, to walk us through that. So yeah, it did, it, the job definitely got heavy <laughs> sometimes. Absolutely. Can, can you walk us through the embalming process just for curiosity? Yeah, sure. I mean, I can sort of maybe at like a high level, um, because it is quite different than the embalming might find at a funeral home because okay. the, the funeral home embalming is largely for the purpose of just, you know, aesthetic purposes. Uh, so you want to ensure that, you know, the, the body looks good for viewing. Yes. The embalming was different because like I said, we were preserving the body for the purpose of, you know, dissecting in the anatomy lab. So we kind of want the tissues to be preserved for as long as possible. And, you know, uh, that was the, the main goal. So the, broadly speaking, what happens when we get uh, a body in is first you, you prepare them. So sometimes, you know, they'll come in in the clothes they were wearing when they died. If they died in a hospital, sometimes they'll be wearing a gown and, you know, they'll have their hospital bracelets on and whatnot. So the first kind of step is to remove all of their clothing, jewelry, nail polish, if they're wearing it, um, kind of strip the body down completely. And then we shave their head uh, and any other like extreme body hair that might be on the body. Um, so we just kind of shave down. Um, the next step is to make the incision in it's the upper thigh and we're kind of aiming for the femoral artery and vein. And so we make, usually it's about a two to three inch incision in the upper thigh. And then, you know, depending on the musculature or fat tissues, you know, you're kind of have to dig down until you can isolate those two, the, the, the artery and the vein. And then you kind of tie off two sides of the artery and then you make an incision in the artery to insert what is called a cannula going up and going down. So a cannula is kind of like this small metal tube attachment that can slide into the artery and then a tube can be hooked up to the metal fixture so that we can pump fluids through it for the embalming process. So you secure the cannulas in place and then you make a small incision in the vein just to allow blood flow to leave mm. the body. Mm -hmm. and then you hook up the we had you know in the morgue it's kind of a whole decked out system so attached to the tables you know we have all of these uh the tubing systems and the pumps so we just connect the 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 tubes to the cannulas and then we drill a hole in the top of the head, um, again, as just a, an outflow of, of fluids, because the first step is to get rid of all of the blood in the body. So drill the hole, and then we run saline solution through the body first. So that's just, again, clearing out as much blood as possible through the entire body. So I think it was usually about I can't remember if it was eight or 16 liters of saline solution uh, through the body, usually until the water is kind of running clear-ish out of the top of the head. Um, and then we start the actual embalming process with the chemicals. So that is uh, a blend, you know, that we made, uh, again, that is more specifically catered to preserving the tissues for a very long time. So it's it's quite a bit stronger than you, what you would probably find at a funeral home. And then we send that through the body um, and you kind of start to see the tissues fill up and be replaced, you know, with, because, you know, when somebody dies, their body becomes quite deflated because there's no pressurized systems happening in the body anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but once we, you know, start essentially, you know, filling the the arteries and veins and cavities with uh, the the embalming solution, you kind of see the body fill up again, and then it becomes 
quite quickly starts hardening as as the tissues start to fix. So that's kind of the the first stage of embalming. And then you let the body kind of just sit with all of that fluid and, you know, the, the tissues absorb it. And then the next day we flip the body uh, over because usually they're on their backs when we start this process. Um, but because there's like pressure on, say, like the buttocks, the shoulder blades, you know, the lowest parts of the body that might not have been fully reached by the tissues, we flip them over. And then we usually do kind of isolated injections of the solution to fill up those areas and make sure that, you know, there's no pinkish uh, tissues left because that usually indicates that it's still kind of raw, unprocessed tissue and that could start decomposing if it's not filled with the, the embalming solution. So we, we do that. And then uh, usually then it's kind of just you're touching up. Usually it's like fingertips, toes, areas where especially in elderly people, you know, you might not have the best blood flow in life, then that's probably also where in death, the, t the you know, embalming solution is not going to get to as, as easily. So we kind of have to go in with like smaller needles and just inject on a case by case basis. And then last couple of steps are injecting the brain with pure formaldehyde. And oh, wow. yeah, so there is formaldehyde mixed in with the solution, the embalming solution, but we put pure formaldehyde into the brain um, because as I'm sure you're aware, the, the brain decomposes quite quickly. It's, it's a very, very soft tissue. So it needs to be, you know, set, you know, quite strongly. So we, we inject pure formaldehyde. So we have to wear like, uh, uh, respirator and stuff because formaldehyde is a carcinogen and very nasty to work with. So we would inject it uh, into each lobe of the brain. And then uh, we eventually, after I think it's about three days in total, we kind of let it all sit, a, a touch up as needed. And then after a, a week, we run something called Infutrace through the body. And what Infutrace does is it neutralizes the toxic formaldehyde component that might be released when, say, a medical student cuts into this body, you know, mm -hmm. inevitably mm -hmm. the fumes of, are going to be released. And we want to neutralize that effect as much as possible so that it's a safe you know, teaching environment for the students. So we run Infutrace through that sort of uh, makes the the formaldehyde in, innate, I guess, is maybe the best way to put it. Okay. Um, and then okay. we take out all of the kind of plugging and tie it up and there's your embalmed body. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that's all the steps are very, uh, I guess, more detailed maybe than you wanted. No, that was no, great. Yeah. It's, it's quite it's quite involved <laughs> thank you for sharing that yeah i'm gonna change gears here how does all of this thinking and experience with death and dying how does that influence your writing and have you mm -hmm. always been a writer um yeah i mean it it definitely heavily influences my writing i wasn't so much like a creative writer growing up like you know obviously throughout school and whatnot to a certain extent, you're kind of forced to write in some capacity. But most of my writing came through the form of academic writing. So through, you know, various papers and whatnot through my undergrad. And I wrote a paper on the kind of sociological implications of using sudden infant death syndrome as a diagnosis. I, I wrote a paper on that through my practicum and then ended up going through the publication process and it was published in 2020. So that was like one of the first times I had, even though vastly different kind of content for writing that I had really worked on a piece for a long time and then kind of went through, you know, the rigorous process of trying to get published. And that almost like planted a seed that like, oh, maybe I'm an okay writer. And then as when the pandemic hit and, you know, we were all trying to like find ways to keep busy, 
that's sort of how I started teaching myself how to do screenwriting and like the format of screenwriting. And, you know, they always say with writing, write what you know. And as somebody who had spent all of this time in the death industry and thinking about death and mortality and whatnot, it was still something that I thought about a lot and had a lot of stories to tell too. So I sort of just started thinking about like, oh, well, if I were to write a TV show, like what would I write about? And, you know, I, I really love dark comedies uh, just as a fan of, of watching them. So I was like, well, I haven't really seen a dark comedy that's in a morgue and kind of plays with like the kind of day-to-day antics that happen in a morgue because I feel like a lot of times when we see morgues in particular portrayed on TV and movies, it's <sighs> it, it's not always accurate, of course, like with a lot of, I'm sure you feel this way about medical TV shows, like obviously the goal is to be entertaining. So, and we only have, you know, 42 minutes with commercials to really get the point across or, you know, 21 minutes if it's a comedy. So, you know, a lot of the like, uh, accuracies kind of have to be skipped over and whatnot. But also I, I don't know. I liked the idea of a more comedic based show happening inside of a morgue, uh, that could be somewhat based on, you know, my life and experiences working in a morgue. So I, I just sort of started from there. And then I, I I just so happened to get my script read by like a writer director that I really admire. And he gave me a lot of really lovely, positive feedback. And it just sort of sent me on this uh, yeah, path of, of writing more and more. And then I wrote like a feature length script uh, that also, you know, is, is about death and dying. So I think especially since leaving the morgue and not being so heavily involved in that space anymore, writing and, you know, filmmaking and doing the podcast, it just became like a really great outlet to still intellectually explore these like themes and topics that I still find super, super interesting. Um, but being able to explore them in a creative way rather than like by practically like going to a morgue and handling a dead body, mm -hmm. it, it became just like a lot more satisfying to me. It was like, Oh, I can, I can still engage with this type of work, but I can do it. I don't know, in a way at a that distance. at a distance and that feels a little bit more, uh, yeah, creative, creatively fulfilling because I, I have always been a creative person, but going through, you know, undergrad and academia and the morgue work, I felt at a certain point that it had been sort of beaten out of me that I was either too mentally or you know, physically or whatnot, exhausted to engage in any creativity because of my work. And now I kind of get to integrate both of them in a way that feels really personally satisfying. But then also I get to, you know, hopefully start conversations with people through my work about death, dying, mortality, et cetera, like, you know, in a way that feels very meaningful as well. So that's always, you know, what you hope with art is that you get to start a conversation or that somebody is, feels seen through your work or, you know, it's like, oh, I, I also think about this. Just like when I was a kid, you know, I was seeking out media books, you know, uh, podcasts weren't super a thing back then, but you know, I know that if I <laughs> I was a kid now dealing with what I was going through, I 100% would be like seeking out podcasts like yours and mine just because I was hungry for those types of conversations. So I that's sort of the mentality I go into my art now is hopefully if I'm talking about these things through this medium that other people will see it and feel some sense of community or that they aren't alone in thinking about these kinds of things. Definitely. Does your writing help you reflect on your own mortality? Yeah, I, I think so. I, 
it's funny because I feel like when I write, I, I don't know, especially when I'm writing, like say a movie script or a, a, even with my TV show, even though I, I would say with a TV show, it feels most autobiographical in certain ways. D does the show have a name? Is there, is it available to watch? No, it's, it's, no, it's okay. very much still in the, the development stage. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I'm still quite early in my career that way, but cool. yeah, cool. I would say it's, it's funny because I think a lot of times still I'm processing the mortality of others in the ways that I didn't super get to fully as a child. And I would say with my own mortality, I don't know. I, I, I have to definitely check myself sometimes because I find my way of intellectualizing things or, you know, delving into it through art or whatnot can almost be a way to skirt around the subject in a way as well. Yeah, and, it can end up being like, instead of embracing it, it can yes. actually be a form of avoidance. Uh, totally. And, you know, as somebody who, again, I'm like with my podcast through my work and whatnot, it would be hard to, to, to say that I'm fully avoiding. But yeah, it's definitely still become something that it's like, oh, well, I'm talking about mortality in general, not necessarily my own. So mm. I, I don't know if um, I don't know if I've exactly explored my own mortality through the lens of something I've written so far. Sure. Um, but it's something that I, I do ponder enough. But I think I, I have a bit of a hesitancy to like, I don't know, write something that's like fully, fully about myself just because I, I don't know. I'm like, uh, who cares? I, I would rather like write about a, a made up person who's just kind of an amalgamation of a bunch of different people or thoughts or feelings I have. But it's, a, it's also scary to write about yourself. Probably. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It feels, I think I still have a bit of like a vulnerability thing with that where I'm like, I, I don't want to write something and then show it to someone and be like, oh, this is, this is you, right? And be like, oh, uh, like, it just yeah. feels very, very personal that way. So like, it's, al it's yeah. already super vulnerable to yes. share your writing. Yes. And then when you start sharing personal things, it's, yes. it's basically just like walking through the town square naked. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I've definitely like equated it to if I were just to be like, oh, yeah, like, here's my personal journal with all of my most like personal inner thoughts. But I'm just kind of that makes it seem like it's just a TV show about somebody else. Mm -hmm. that, that's very, very vulnerable. And then, you know, of course, people will read into certain things no matter what. But yeah, I think there's there's a level of like wanting to process my own mortality maybe just on my own time and then any I don't know lessons or takeaways that I feel like could be more generalizable that I I try to put into my writing as well, but you know, ultimately personal work I think does help people resonate with things more, so it's probably just a vulnerability thing that I have to maybe get over <laughs> if I want to keep sharing my work. But yeah, do you ever have the experience when you're writing of like an idea or something just comes to you and it's completely out of the blue and you have no idea where it came from, but you're writing it anyway? Hmm. It's funny. I definitely had that like a few things similar to that, like when I've already been working on a script or something. And I'll just kind of have this like, oh, like the, my, my character should do this or like this should happen to them. And, you know, I'll just kind of like, oh, that's kind of interesting that that kind of seemingly came out of nowhere. And then, you know, I'll take like a break from writing it for a little while and go back and read it. And I'll be like, oh, well, like, duh, that's where this came from. Like, uh, so you know, eventually you're able to figure out where that muse came from. A sort of. Yeah. I mean, hmm. I. I'm sure there have been examples where something just materializes out of nowhere and it, and it happens, it ends up in a script and it's just kind of uh, uh, siloed amongst other ideas. But I don't know. That's one of the kind of interesting things about when you get deep into the writing process. I've found that 
some things will just slowly eventually kind of seep out of your subconscious. And Mm -hmm. even if you're not able to immediately pinpoint why you had that thought or where it came from, it, it was a part of a, you know, an already established schema of thoughts and who you are as a person and experiences that, you know, it's, it's going to come out in some way or form, but yeah, I, I also, uh, on the other hand, don't feel like I'm super a person who just gets struck with an incredible idea. I feel like a lot of writing is just beating your head against a desk until <laughs> something comes out and then working on it forever until it's somewhat readable for other people. But who knows, maybe. <laughs> I, like I said, I still feel pretty new to all, this whole world. So I think in terms of my writing process and all of that, I, I'm still figuring it out as well. Yeah, Jerry Seinfeld said once that the hardest thing you can do is just sit down and write for two hours. Oh my God, yes. And the day that you do that, don't share it with anyone because you, yes. ac- you accomplish something. And as soon as you share it with someone, they're going to shit on it in some way. And there's no reason to ruin your work in that moment. So Yes. Yeah. It's, it's so, so painful to like work on anything for any amount of time. Cause you know, kind of famously first drafts of anything are just complete garbage. <laughs> like <laughs> but to be able to read it, to be able to like recognize that it's bad and then still be able to push forward and be like, I'm, I'm going to try, like, I'm going to try to still push through the crap to try to make this good. It's, it's, it's a humbling experience for sure. It, it takes a lot of work and yeah. Courage. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's tough stuff, but yeah. Once you get it to a point where you do feel okay sharing it with somebody though, it is the most nerve-wracking thing it's it's so like you said it's just so vulnerable it's feels like I'm handing them my heart you know it's like Mm -hmm. absolutely and then a lot of times you do want like honest feedback because you want to try to be better and you know like if you get tunnel vision with a certain project like you know you want other eyes on it to to try to make it the best thing possible but Oh, being able just to like take the criticism and, you know, apply it and try to feel okay about it is that's a whole, that's a whole other thing. Do you have any behaviors or rituals around reflecting around your mortality? Hmm. I guess like the closest thing I have to it at this point is almost the podcast because Hmm. I feel like every time I sit down to have a conversation with somebody for the podcast, it, it's sort of my dedicated time and space to reflect on death and mortality. So inevitably through whatever context of what my guests are, are talking about and their experiences, it does sort of force me to reflect on my own mortality and how it applies to my own life. And, you know, I, I've definitely spoken to a lot of people who are like far more wise and, you know, have more profound thoughts around death and their own practice with mortality that it kind of, yeah, forces me to uh, even, you know, when we hang up the call or whatnot to, to be like, wow, okay. Am I actually going to like sit with what they said and, and how can I apply what they've said to my own life and my own thoughts around mortality? And I can't say that it's it's a, a perfect system, but that is something that I've really liked having the podcast to do is it kind of like gives me permission to at least every couple of weeks or so for like an hour or, you know, when I edit the podcast too, mm-hmm. like I to go back and listen to the conversation to really sit with what they've said and and apply it to my own life but I think outside of that context maybe just because through my work I engage with mortality so much I feel like when I'm not in that space I don't seek out opportunities to talk about or reflect on mortality just because then I feel like it would be too all-consuming sure you know like it's kind of I don't as much as I do 
heavily believe it's important to engage in these kind of conversations and thoughts on a, a regular basis. I think you can also kind of dip into the other end where you're only in that of, you know, fixating almost on death and dying and, you know, whatnot. And I think topics or themes like those, it's it's healthy to kind of weave in and out and find some kind of balance between that. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, I find so far that seems to be a pretty good balance, but yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, definitely don't want people perseverating on these topics. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. Well, in preparation for this talk, was there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to talk about? No, I, I think we've pretty much covered all of the bases. Um, yeah, I feel I feel good. Is there anything else that that I've missed or skimmed over that you want to revisit or ask? I appreciate you and your time and sharing your thoughts on all of this and telling us about you. And do you want to let listeners know where they can find you? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, so my podcast is called Mortality in the Morgue. Uh, it's, I think you can find it pretty much wherever you find your, your podcasts. Um, my website is rochelleuni.com and I'm on Instagram at rochelleuni. And my podcast is also on social media on Instagram at Mortality in the Morgue. So you can Find me in any of those places. Come say hi. I always like uh, meeting new people in the space. And yeah, come come on by. Say hello. Awesome. Well, on that note, I will wrap up. The contents of this podcast are for informational purposes only. A patient-physician relationship is never established through this medium, and nothing on this podcast should be considered medical advice. If you are having medical or emotional issues, please seek evaluation and treatment from a trained and trusted professional. The views reflected in this podcast do not reflect the views of any entity outside of the conversation. Please share this with three people. Thanks for listening.